All right, we're there in Philippians chapter number two. And of course, on Sunday mornings, we've been going through this series entitled Rejoice. It is a verse by verse study through the book of Philippians. And of course, today is 4th of July, and maybe you were expecting a 4th of July sermon, but I'll be preaching that at the park tonight. Tonight, I'm going to be preaching a sermon entitled What Made America Great. And I encourage you to be with us at 6 p.m. as we look at that subject. This morning, we're going to pick up where we left off. Uh, last week in the book of Philippians. And of course, as we've been studying through Philippians, every week I remind you of this, the book of Philippians is a book of joy. And it is a book about Jesus. And it's about the joy that can be found in Jesus. The series is called Rejoice because over and over and over throughout the book of Philippians, Paul is reminding us to rejoice and to have joy. And in this passage, the uh, Apostle Paul begins to deal with the church at Philippi uh, in regards to this idea of work. I want you to notice verse 12. Uh, there's a phrase that can be uh, a little bit of a difficult phrase for some people. In verse 12, it says, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Notice this phrase. He says, Work out your own salvation. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, I'd like you to keep your place there in Philippians chapter 2. That's our text for this morning. But go back with me, if you would, into the book of Ephesians. Right before the book of Philippians, you have Ephesians. Ephesians chapter number 2. And this little phrase, work out your own salvation, has been a problem phrase for some people. Now, it shouldn't be a problem for us if we believe God's Word and we study God's Word in its context. However, some people will take this phrase, work out your own salvation, and they'll teach that you have to work your way to heaven, or you have to do good works uh, to uh, get into heaven. Now, just simply looking at the phrase itself ought to show you that that's not the meaning of, of what Paul is saying. He's saying, work out your own salvation. He's not saying work to get salvation. He's not saying work to earn salvation. He's saying work out what's already in. You already have salvation. He says, work out your own salvation. However, with that said, let's just... Uh, make sure and uh, we understand that the Bible clearly teaches, and we could spend an entire sermon on this, and I could take you to verse after verse after this verse, and I'm not going to do that. The Bible clearly teaches that we are not saved by works. Ephesians chapter 2, let's just look at the quintessential verse on that subject. Verse 8, the Bible says, for by grace. The word grace means uh, unmerited favor. It means free. It means you have not earned it. You don't uh, uh, work for it. You didn't pay for it. He says, for by grace are ye saved. The word saved there is referring to being saved from hell. It says through faith. The word faith means to believe. And that. I want you to notice the word that there. The word that is referring back to being saved. It says, that not of yourselves. The Bible teaches that if you're saved, if I'm saved, it's not of ourselves. It's not something we produce. It's not something that we do. Here's why. It is the gift of God. Salvation, according to the Bible, is a gift. So therefore, we don't produce it. It's something we're given. It's not something we produce because it is a gift. It's of grace. A gift, by definition, is free. You don't pay for it. It's given to you. Notice verse 9, not of works, lest any man should boast. The Bible teaches that salvation is not of works, meaning we don't earn it. You don't go to heaven uh, because of things that you do. You don't go to heaven because of any exterior thing you do. Salvation is not going to church. It's not getting baptized. It's not reading the Bible. It's not cleaning up your life. Salvation is something that happens inside of you. It happens in your heart. The Bible says that with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. We are not saved by anything exterior. We are saved by what happens in our heart when we believe and call upon Jesus Christ. However, when God saves you, He saves you from the inside. And Paul says, work out your own salvation. You get saved on the inside. And then we are to spend the rest of our Christian life working out what God has worked in. We're not saved by that which is exterior, but our salvation, which happened in the interior, should work itself out into the exterior. We're not saved by works. However, we are saved to work. Notice verse 10, Ephesians 2 and verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. And again, you're not saved by works. But once you got saved, God expected you to get to work. You're not saved 
by doing good works, but God expects you to do good works when you are saved. Now, if you don't do works, are you still saved? Of course you are. Salvation is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul in Romans tells us that to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. So we understand that you don't have to do works in order to be saved, but we are saved to work. Notice, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Walk in what? Good works. So we're not saved by works. We are saved to work. Now, I want you to keep your finger right there in Ephesians 2 and go back to Philippians 2. Keep, you're there in Ephesians 2. Go back to Philippians 2. Paul tells us, and this passage is about the fact that we uh, must work and the work that we must do after salvation. See, God saved you on the inside, and we're supposed to work out what God has worked in. What God has done on the inside, we're supposed to bring it out to the outside. But this passage is not only about the work that we must do after salvation, because we're not saved by works, but we are saved to work. This passage is also about the fact that God is actually doing a work in you. Look at verse 13. For it is God which worketh in you. Notice, God is working in you, and we are supposed to be working out what God is working in. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. This is also what Ephesians 2 says. If you flip back to Ephesians 2, look at verse 10. Notice what he says there at the beginning of verse 10. He says, for we are his. The his there is referring to God. We are his workmanship. God is at work in you. God is working on you. And what the Apostle Paul is talking about here in Philippians, go back to Philippians chapter 2, he's referring to the fact that God is working in you, and you and I should be working out what God is working in. The idea is that we should uh, work with God as God works on you. In other passages, we're told that we are co-laborers with God, that we are uh, uh, laboring together with God. And what Paul is talking about in this passage and what he's teaching to the church at Philippi is that God is at work in you, and, and God is doing a work inside of you. But we must work with God to work out what he's working in. We must be working with God as God works on you. And by the way, this is the reason you're still here. Have you ever thought about the fact that why, why doesn't God just, after you call upon him for salvation and save you, after he saves you, why doesn't he just kill us and take us to, or rapture you and take you to heaven immediately? See, salvation is not of works, but after salvation comes this process that God wants to, you to engage in. It's called sanctification. God wants to begin to work in you and on you, but God needs you to work with him. See, God can't do the work in you on his own. We're not Calvinists. God is not going to force his hand upon you. God is not going to force his, his, his way upon you. He needs you to work with him. And this is what the Apostle Paul is talking about. The idea is this. Look, God save you. If you're here this morning, it's 4th of July. I'm assuming if you're here this morning, it's because you're saved. Unfortunately, this tells you how godly our nation is. When 4th of July falls on a Sunday, churches have lower attendances, not higher attendances. Same with Christmas, by the way. <laughs> you know, it's always funny to me how people skip out on church on Christmas when it falls on a Sunday. You're supposed to be celebrating the birth of Christ. Anyway, that's a story for a different day. God is working in you. And God wants you, God wants you to work with him to work out what he's working in. So the question is this, how can we work with God? How can you help God work with God what he's working in you, out of you. And the question we ought to be asking ourselves this morning is, are you working with God? What does that look like? And the Apostle Paul here gives us three thoughts and three ideas in regards to how to work with God as he works on you. Have you thought about that? Have you ever thought about the fact that God wants you to work with him, to work on you? God's going to work in you, and he wants you to labor with him to work on you. And the question is this, are you working with God as God 
works on you. You say, I don't know. What does that look like? Well, there's three thoughts that Paul gives us here in this passage. I encourage you to write them down. On the back of your course of the week, there's a place for you to take down some notes. First of all, when it comes to working with God as God works on you, what does that look like? It depends upon, number one, and I'd like you to write this down, your application of the Word of God. You hear me say that a lot. We talk a lot about this, but we talk a lot about it because it's mentioned a lot in the Bible. If you want to know how good of a worker you are, if you want to know how good of a co-laborer you are with God, how good you are at working alongside with God, you say, we're working together? Yes. On what? What's the project? The project is you. God is working on you, and God wants you to help Him work on you. You say, well, how do I know if I'm a good worker as I work with God? Well, that depends upon your application of the Word of God. Notice verse 12, Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. He says, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, notice these words, As ye have always obeyed. You say, I want to know how good I am at working with God. Well, how good are you at obeying God? How good is your obedience with God? He says, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, as ye have always obeyed, look at verse 13, for it is God which worketh in you both to will and... I want you to notice these two words. In fact, if you don't mind writing in your Bible, I'd like you to underline or circle these words, these two words. He says, for it is God which worketh in you to will and... Notice these words, to do of His good pleasure. All throughout the Bible, all throughout the Bible, there is an emphasis put on this idea of what you do with what you've heard. Of whether you obey what you've been told from the Word of God. Keep your place there in Philippians. Go with me to the book of Matthew, if you would. First book in the New Testament, Matthew chapter number 7. See, the Bible tells us that we are to do, that we are to put into practice, that we are to put into practice the Word of God. Look, the Word of God is not a book of, of, of theory. It is a book that is meant to be put into practice. It is not just theology, although it has theology. It is an instructional book. The Bible says, this book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night. We like that as Christians, but it says that ye may observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. You say, why do I read the Bible every day? I don't know why you read the Bible, but I'll tell you why you should read the Bible, so you can do what it says. Why do you go to church on a Sunday morning? Why do you go to church on a Sunday night? Why do you go to church on a Wednesday night? Some of you, it's because your uh, husband makes you, or your wife makes you, or your parent makes you, but you know, the reason you should, the Bible says, despise not prophesying. The reason you should show up to church every time the door are open is because the word of God is preached. And you say, well, why does that matter? Here's why. That thou mayest observe to do. Look, success can only be found in our application of the word of God. You can't have success otherwise. You can't have success as a Christian if you don't actually do what God tells you to do. Bible says the secret things belong unto the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong unto us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. Our job is to do. So when you want to gauge your maturity, that's another way to put it. How mature are you as a Christian? How, how mature are you in your Christian walk? It all depends on this. It all comes down to this. Your application of the Word of God. Do you actually do what the Bible tells you to do? Here's how Jesus put it. Matthew chapter 7. One of the most famous parables in all the Bible. Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. Matthew chapter 7, verse 24, the Bible says this, Jesus said this, Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine, that's, that's you, that's us, right? We're here in God's house hearing God's word. We're hearing these sayings of Jesus. He says, Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine. See, there's two types of Christians in this world. There are those who hear the word of God and, notice, doeth them. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine, and it's not enough to hear it. It's not enough to read it. 
It's not enough to have a parent sit you down and, and open up the Word of God and explain it to you and teach it to you. You have to hear it and then you have to do it. Hear it, these sayings of mine and do it then. Jesus says, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. We just sang that song, that we are standing on the solid rock. That rock is the Lord Jesus Christ, and that rock is the Word of God, because Jesus is the Word of God. He says, I will liken him unto a man which built his house upon a rock. Notice, and the rain descended. Look, it's not if the rain descends, it's when the rain descends. There's always storms. There's always trials. There's always struggles. There's always difficulty. The Bible says, Jesus said, and the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon the house, and it fell not. Why? For it was founded upon a rock. Now look, don't, don't, get, a, don't get away from the understanding. What does it mean to be founded upon the rock? It's that you hear these sayings of mine and doeth them. Here's a second type of Christian. Look at verse 26. And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not. You don't think there's people that come to a church like this, hear preaching like this, and don't do it? <laughs> don't apply it? Don't actually do what God says? And everyone that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not shall be likened unto a foolish man. And by the way, this is Jesus speaking. Which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the wind blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. Unfortunately, some people's lives can be described by that phrase, great was the fall of it. When people live their lives in a way where they hear the Word of God and do not apply it, they hear it, but they don't do it. It's just a matter of time. It's a matter of time before an offense comes, before a storm comes, before a trial comes that, uh, that, that causes them to fall away. And, you, and we say, and we say, oh, that great trial or that great burden or that great offense or that great thing that happened, that's what swept them away, but that's not what swept them away. That great trial only revealed for us what was already there. A Christian that was not founded upon the Word of God. See, if, if you ask a Christian... Are you founded upon the Word of God? I think everybody would say, well, yeah, I'm founded upon the Word of God. But here's how Jesus defines being founded upon the Word of God, is how much of the Word of God do you actually do? And if we had to answer it that way, we might say, mm, I don't know. See, our working with God as God works with us, our working out what God has worked in, our maturity, however you want to refer to it, is all dependent upon your application of the Word of God. Here's a question I have for you this morning. Do you obey the Word of God? When you hear it, when you hear the Word of God and you realize, wow, that's how, I didn't know I was supposed to do that, or I didn't know I was stop, supposed to stop doing that, or I didn't know that I was not supposed to speak that way, or I was supposed to speak that way, or I didn't know that. But when you hear it, do you immediately apply it and say, well, it's the Word of God? Or do you just say, oh, that's interesting. I'm just going to keep doing whatever I'm doing. See, Paul says, Paul says that your Christian maturity is dependent upon your application of the Word of God. He says that you must obey. Now, I want you to notice how he tells us to obey. You're there in Philippians. Uh, you're there in Matthew. Go back to Philippians chapter 2. There's two characteristics in regards to obedience. Notice verse 12, especially you young people. I want you to listen up. Philippians 2 and verse 12, he says, Wherefore, my beloved brethren... As you have always obeyed. But then he says this. Not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. You say, what does it mean to be an obedient Christian? What does it mean to obey? Obey is only obedience. Obedience is only obedience when you do it even when no one's watching. I mean, here Paul says, he says, as you've always obeyed, because it's not hard to act spiritual around the preacher. 
It's not hard to act spiritual uh, uh, around the pastor or the pastor's wife or, 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 or the church staff or whatever. Paul says, I'll know you're actually obeying when you do it not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. I would say that this is one of, if not the major burden that I have for the young people at Verity Baptist Church. It's not what they do when they're being watched, but what they do when they're not being watched. Young person, we will only know if you truly love the Lord and walk with God when you follow God and no one's forcing you to follow God. What will you do when no one's telling you what to do? What will you do when no one's watching you? When no one's forcing you? When no one's making you get up and read the Bible, get up and get dressed, we're going soul winning, get up and get dressed, we're going to church. What will you do? Because the truth is this, obedience must begin in the heart. I think of the story they tell of a uh, rebellious little boy who uh, was standing up during his class time and his teacher said, sit down, and he, he wouldn't sit down and she forced him to sit and he stood back up and she forced him to sit and, 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 and she, he sat, stood back up and she forced him to sit and, and then he f- finally stayed down and he said, are you going to stay down? And he said, I'm going to stay down, but I'm standing up in my heart. <laughs> I saw some of you live your Christian life. As you have always obeyed, Paul said, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. When no human authority is watching, what do you do? And by the way, when no human authority is watching, God's watching. You know the Word of God can change your life? The Bible says, for the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing even to the dividing ascender of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. It can dig deep in inside of you. But here's what's interesting. The very next verse says this. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Do you know that God watches whether you obey his word, not when you're being watched, but when you're not being watched? Obedience is only obedience when you obey when God is not watching. When, excuse me, when mankind is not watching. God is always watching. Go to the book of Ecclesiastes, if you would. Ecclesiastes chapter number 12. If you open your Bible just right in the center, you'll more than likely fall in the book of Psalms. Right after Psalms, you have Proverbs and then Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter number 12. Today is the 4th of July. We are celebrating independence. But I want to remind you that independence is the freedom to do as we ought to do, not what we want to do. In fact, the quickest way to have your freedom taken from you is to only do that which you want to do. Is to take the path of least resistance. Is to do what you want to do. See, people think, oh, I'm going to go up one day. You talk to young people. I'm going to go up one day. I'm going to do whatever I want. All right, well, we'll visit you. You, you do whatever you want, you'll find yourself in bondage. Yep, right, True freedom is found when we have the ability to do whatever we want and we choose to do whatever is right. Amen. Freedom is found. True freedom is to do. It's, it's the liberty. It's the freedom to do what we ought to do, not what we want to do, because you're never actually not under authority. God is always watching you. Ecclesiastes 12, 14, For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. If there's one thing I wish I could get into the hearts of our young people and the hearts of our not-so-young people is that God is always watching. The Bible says that his, His eyes behold the evil and the good. God knows. God knows whether you actually obey the word of God or not. So Paul says, if you're going to work out your own salvation, he said, it's dependent upon the application of the word of God. He said, you must obey. Obey, and and you say, well, what does that mean? It means you obey when no one's watching. It means you obey when you're not under authority. It means that you still do right, even when nobody's forcing you to do right. 
Then Paul says this. Look, keep, keep your place right there in Ecclesiastes. We're going to come right back to it. Keep your place right there and go, to, go back to Philippians 2. Look at verse 12. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation. Notice these, two words, or these, these several words. With fear and trembling. He said, what does obedience look like? True obedience looks like this. Obey when no one is watching and obey with fear and trembling. Obey when nobody's watching and obey with fear and trembling. See, the Bible teaches that we must obey when no one is watching because we should obey God, not just obey man. And when man's not watching, God is still watching. You say, how can I get to that place where I'm obeying even when I'm not being supervised, here's what that looks like. It looks like someone who actually fears God. Ecclesiastes 12, can you go back to it? Look at verse 13. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Here we have the wisest man on earth saying, here's here's it, here's everything, here's all of life. The conclusion of the whole matter is this. You want to know how how to live your life in a way that is pleasing to God. He says, Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Let me ask you something. Do you fear God? I know we'd all say, oh, of course we fear God. Well, whether you fear God or not will, will actually be shown in how you keep His commandments. I mean, look, look, at, look at the verse again, 13. Fear God and keep His commandments. Fear God and keep His commandments. See, People will often say to me, I love God, I love the Lord, I want to do whatever God tells you to do. And then you say, all right, well, God doesn't want you to fornicate. And they're like, oh, well, I'm just going to take my chances. You don't actually fear God. You're not actually obeying God. You're just doing whatever you want. And God says, look, and we have this idea and we think, oh, well, God must be permitting it. Don't confuse God's patience with his permission. God is long-suffering, but mark my words, be not deceived, God is not mocked. God may give you time, but that doesn't mean he's not paying attention. Proverbs 8 and verse 13, if you're there in Ecclesiastes and go backwards to Proverbs chapter 8 and verse 13, look, you, you, you might deceive your mom and you might deceive your dad, you might deceive your pastor, and you might deceive the police, and you might deceive whatever human authority, but be not deceived, God is not mocked. That's right. God knows, God is watching, God keeps a scorecard. And look, we, we all need to develop a healthy fear of God. You say, a a love for God? Yeah, we ought to love God. A reverence to God? Yes, we should respect God. But actually just afraid of what God will do to you. Afraid that if you sleep around, God might give you some disease. Afraid that if you go out and get drunk, God might allow you to be killed. Uh, afraid that if you go and, 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 and walk with the wicked, you might end up in, in, in their same fate and you might get arrested with them and in trouble with them. Afraid of what God may actually allow in your life. Proverbs 8.13, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Don't, don't tell me you, hate, you fear the Lord if you don't hate evil. And by the way, the fear of the Lord is to hate pride and arrogancy and the evil way and the forward mouth. He says, he says, do I hate? Proverbs 3 and verse 7. Proverbs 3 and verse 7 says this. Be not wise in thine own eyes. Fear the Lord. Notice how these things are always coupled together. And depart from evil. You, you, don't tell me, oh, I'm, I'm obedient. But when no one's looking, I do whatever I want. You don't fear God. You're not obedient to God. If there's one thing that I could, if, if God would allow me to just input one thing into the heart of, of Christians and especially young people, it would be a fear of the Lord. Because one day, they're going to wake up, 40 years old, looking around, realizing they've ruined and messed up their lives. And realize, oh wow, God wasn't messing around. Oh wow, I didn't get away with it with God. Look, there's always repentance, there's always forgiveness. But you can't get back the years that the locusts... The the Bible says that God can restore the years that the locusts has taken. But the truth of the matter is, 
You can't get back those scars. Go back to Philippians. While you turn there, let me read to you from Luke, Luke chapter 6, 46. This is what Jesus says. He says, and, when, and why call ye me Lord, Lord? This is what Jesus said. I think this is a very interesting verse. Luke 6, 46. And why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. How do we work with God as God works with us? Well, that depends on your application of the word of God. That depends on your obedience. You say, how do I know if I'm obedient? Well, if you're truly obedient, you'll obey when no one's watching. You'll obey when no one's forcing you. You'll obey because you actually fear God. And I'm not saying that in a spiritual way. I'm saying you're afraid. You're afraid. Here's all I'm saying is, if God forbid, if you men were out there running around in a car somewhere going to meet some woman you're not married to, I'd, I'd be afraid that God was going to crush that car and crush your spine. Right, right, right. So I, I, I don't think you should think that way. Maybe you should start thinking that way. Right. I, I'd be afraid that the patience of God would eventually run out. I'd be afraid. But that's how we know you don't fear God, because you do whatever you want. Because you hear the word of God and you say, eh. You hear the word of God and you say, I'll take my chances with God. Except you'll learn like the book of Job that it's easy to speak. We learn from Job's three friends and we learn from this clown, Elihu, that it's easy to speak in big and confident words. But when God shows up, when God shows up, you're not going to stand up and say, I'll take my chances with God. When God shows up, you'll wish you'll obeyed. Why don't you notice... Paul not only refers to obedience, but he refers to desire. Look at verse 13, Philippians 2, 13. For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. I want you to notice, we saw those words to do, but I want you to notice these two words, to will. To will. For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. If you would, go back to the book of Psalms, Psalm 37. If you open your Bible just right in the center, you're more than likely following the book of Psalms. If you kept your place in Proverbs, right before Proverbs, you have Psalms. You know what's interesting? In verse 12, we're told, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, as ye have always obeyed. And in verse 13, we read, For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. See, people, people have this idea wrong. They say, When I feel like doing it, then I'll do it. And some people, well, I don't, I don't have the desire to read the Bible, Pastor. You preach about me getting up every morning, reading the Bible, getting up every morning, reading the Bible, but I don't have the desire to, to read the Bible. I don't have the desire to uh, be consistent to church. I don't have a desire to spend time in prayer. I don't have a desire to, to do these things. But the, the, the thing is this, that God says, when you obey, you'll develop the desire. First you obey, then you get the desire. You just do what God tells you to do. Look, it's called character. It's called integrity. It's called duty to do what you should do, whether you feel like it or not. Amen. But the good news is this. When you do what you should do, whether you feel like it or not, eventually you'll start feeling like doing it. Amen. One day you'll wake up and say, I want to read the Bible. Psalm 37, verse 4, notice what the Bible says, Delight thyself also in the Lord. Delight thyself also in the Lord, Psalm 37, 4, and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. That doesn't mean that if you delight yourself in the Lord, he's going to give you all your ungodly desires that you have. He says when you delight yourself in the Lord, your desires will change. Look, I'm just telling you, the more time you spend in the Word of God, the more time you spend listening to the preaching of the Word of God, the more time you spend in prayer, the more time you spend doing what God wants you to do, walking in the Spirit, denying the flesh, all of a sudden, you're not going to want to uh, 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 have all those covetous, lustful desires. Amen. The Bible puts it this way, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Amen. But you're never going to have that desire while you're walking in the flesh. You first obey, then you get the desire. 
You delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. Go back to Philippians chapter 2. Here's an, here's an example that connects with a lot of people who didn't grow up in church. An example of the old hymns. Now, I never felt this way because I grew up in church and I've always loved the old hymns. But people show up to church like this and they hear singing the old rugged cross and blessed assurance and they think, that's weird. It's kind of weird music. Yeah, because it's spiritual music. And when you walked in, you weren't that spiritual. That's, that's kind of odd. But you, after a while, you start liking it. After a while, you, you start, you know, you turn off that trash coming out of the radio in your car and you just start singing some of these old hymns as you're driving down the road. Delight thyself on the Lord and he shall give thee the desires of thine heart. First you obey, then comes the desire. First the obedience, then the desire. So Paul tells us how we can work with God as he works on us. He, can, he teaches us how to work out our own salvation. It's really about Christian maturity and what does it mean and what does it look like? How do I know if I'm a mature Christian? Well, it has to, depends upon your application of the Word of God. But I want you to notice, secondly, this morning, not only does it depend upon your application of the Word of God, but it also depends upon your attitude as a child of God. Notice verse 14. In verse 14 and in verse 15, he gives us a don't and a do. Remember, we talked about that last week. He gave us a don't and a do. In this passage, he gives us a don't and a do as well. He says, when it comes to your attitude as a child of God, he says, don't. Don't what? Verse 14. Do all things without murmurings and disputings. He says, don't complain and argue. Unfortunately, when I think of complaining and arguing, I think of, the average worldly teenager. Isn't that what worldly teenagers do? Complain about everything, argue about everything. But you know what? Christian teenagers, spiritual teenagers, do the same thing. Always complaining about everything, arguing about everything. By the way, you're trying to get teenagers to do something, just tell them you want them to do the opposite thing. Because their default mode is just complain and argue, complain and argue. I don't like that. I don't want to do it. Well, you know what the Bible says? Do all things without murmuring and disputing. Go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. You're there in Philippians, Colossians, 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. See, Paul says your Christian maturity is dependent upon your application of the Word of God, and he says it is dependent upon your attitude as a child of God. And by the way, he's stating here that when you complain, when you murmur and you dispute, you complain and you argue, this shows your immaturity. Look, I don't care how old you are. You're here this morning, and your life can be characterized by these words, complaining and arguing, you're immature. A mature person doesn't complain. A mature person just does whatever they're supposed to do. That, look, that's why you, you, you young guys want to complain about everything. Every time you're asked to do something, every time you're told to do something, I don't want to do it, I don't want to do it. Look at the grown men in this church that run successful businesses or have good careers and have good jobs. You think they go to work every day and they just want to do what they're... Nobody want, wants to do... Half the stuff we do, we just do it because it's the right thing to do. Quit complaining. Quit arguing. Do all things without murmuring. The word murmur means to complain, but it's even worse than that. It's this, you ever meet someone who's just constantly has this like low grumble? Gotta take out the trash, gotta take out the trash. (laughs) Gotta go to the store for my wife, gotta go, go to the, always needs me to go to the store for my wife. That's how some of you live your Christian life. Can't hold hands because pastor can get mad at us. Gotta read the Bible because pastor said gotta read the Bible. The Bible says do all things without murmuring and complaining. Without murmuring and disputing. It's weird when people are mumbling below their breath just kind of talk. It's like, who are you talking to? 1 Thessalonians 5, look at verse 16. In 1 Thessalonians 5, we have this passage where Paul just gives us these little phrases. They're not really connected, but they are. They are connected. They don't seem like they're connected, just these little phrases. Rejoice evermore. Isn't that what Philippians is about? Rejoice. Be happy. 
Be joyful. Look, if, you're, if your Christian life is not characterized by this word rejoice, if your Christian life is just, you're doing it wrong. You're doing something wrong. You say, well, how do you know I'm doing it wrong? Because Jesus isn't. It's either you or it's Jesus, and it's not Jesus. See, rejoice is what we should be doing instead of complaining. He says, rejoice evermore. Then he says this in verse 17, and it doesn't seem like it's connected, but it is connected. He says, pray without ceasing. What does that have to do with rejoicing? Well, here's the thing. You can't rejoice while you complain. And praying is what you should be doing with your complaints. You know that there are so many issues from time to time within, over the years, within a church. I don't know that I don't know if you can understand what I'm saying. Maybe you'd have to be in ministry, but... For my wife and I, there are so many issues throughout the years. And because it's our position, and I'm not saying this because I don't want you to talk to me. I hope you understand that. I want you to talk to me. But there are often so many problems that people bring to us that we just can't control. We, there's nothing we can do. We can advise, we can guide, we can give guidance, but at the end of the day, people have to do whatever they're going to do. And, and sometimes that burden can be heavy. <laughs> but I can tell you from experience, there, there are just some times when we can just go to God in prayer and say, God, you know, there's nothing I can do about this. I, I've given the advice. I've I've tried to preach the Word of God, and I've attempted to influence their lives, and there's nothing we can do, but there's something about prayer where you just release the control of your life back to God. This is why he said, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. You say, I have a lot of complaining. Well, then you should have a very vibrant prayer life. Sometimes when things are going well, I, 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 I take time and uh, I, I like to do my prayer time while on the elliptical and I do most of my prayer time on, on the elliptical and, uh, you know, lots of reasons for that. Part of that is just to kill two birds with one stone. Part of that is also to make sure I don't fall asleep while I'm praying and, you know, those types of things. But, you know, sometimes I get on that elliptical and, I, and things are going well. I'm like, man, I don't got nothing to pray about. People got to mess up their lives more so I can pray. <laughs> You say, I got some burdens. Pray about them. I've got some things I'm not happy with. Pray about it. These phrases are not written down just randomly. Rejoice evermore. It's like Paul's answering. Paul's answering. He says, rejoice evermore. And he hears them say, well, how can I rejoice with all these problems? And then he says, pray without ceasing. Rejoice, and if you can't rejoice, then if you've got burdens and they're heavy, then pray about them. Prayer is what we should do with our complaint. And then he says this, in everything give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. By the way, he says, in everything, not for everything. I understand we can't be thankful for everything, but you can be thankful in everything. Look, when you're, when you're going through your hardest trials and things are not going the way you want them to go, you can stop and be thankful for something. See, Paul says God's ability to work in you and through you and to work with God as God works with you or to work out what God's working in, however you want to call it, he says that is all dependent upon your application of the Word of God and it is dependent upon your attitude as a child of God. So he says, don't complain. Don't argue. If you have real complaints, take them to God. And while you struggle, in everything give thanks. He says, maintain a good attitude. Then he says this, keep your finger right there in 1 Thessalonians. We're going to come back right to it. Go, Go back to Philippians 2. He gives us a don't and a do when it comes to our attitude, right? The don't. Don't complain and argue. Don't complain and argue. Don't complain and argue. Especially, look, especially men, young men. Realize this. It is not becoming of a man 
to be a complainer. Always complaining. You ever get around people? I, I try to not spend a lot of time around people who are just constantly complaining. Complaining about the government, complaining about this, complaining about that. I realize there's issues we got to deal with and there's things to talk about. I'm not saying that we shouldn't be observing and watchful. But when it comes to a place where you're just constantly complaining, complaining, that is not becoming of a man. Show thyself a man. You're the leader. You're in charge. Hopefully your wife's not a complainer, but good night. We don't need two of you complaining. Somebody needs to decide and say, let's do something. Let's take the lead. Let's try to fix things. Let's try to make things better. Don't complain. Don't argue. You say, well, I got all sorts of complaints. Take them to God. Pray without ceasing. Be thankful and grateful. You can always be thankful for something. He says, don't complain and argue. Then he says this, do have character and be agreeable. Notice verse 15, Philippians 2.15. In verse 14, he says, Do all things without murmuring and disputing. Then in verse 15, he says, That ye may be blameless. Don't you notice that word? Blameless and harmless, the sons of God. Now, what this verse is not, it's not saying that if you, you have to be blameless and harmless to be the son of God. Here's what he's saying. When you're blameless and harmless, people will say, There goes the son of God. When you live your life in such a way that it is blameless and harmless, then it'll be a characteristic that people will observe and say, wow, the Son of God. Notice that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke. He says, I want you to be blameless. That has to do with your character. He says, I want you to be harmless. That has to be with your that has to do with being agreeable. What does that mean? Well, look, you're not agreeable when you're always frustrated and angry and complaining and there's always something wrong and there's always, you know, type of people, how you doing? They're like, well, let me tell you, and start murmuring. You're like, look, I, I was, it, it was just a thing I was saying. I, I don't actually care. It's just what we do in society. I'm going to walk away now. He says, be blameless. What does it mean to be blameless? Go back to 1 Thessalonians. The word blameless, often when we think of the word blameless, we think of it being associated to a pastor or a deacon because it's found in the pastoral qualifications, the deacon qualifications. But it's found throughout the Bible, and here in Philippians it's said about normal church people, not just those in authority, spiritual authority. The word blameless does not mean that we're sinless or without sin because you'll never be that. I'll never be that. But the word blameless is this idea that we live our lives above reproach. We live our lives above board. We live our lives in such a way that no one could blame us or rebuke us or accuse us of something. You understand? That's what it means to be blameless. Blameless means that, because in ministry, and by the way, in ministry, we'll talk about this probably with Elihu, but in ministry, the Bible says that uh, uh, we, none of us should make false accusations, but when it comes to a pastor, the Bible says, rebuke not an elder, but entreat him as a father. And the Bible says that uh, against an elder, that you're not even supposed to receive an accusation, except to be before two or three witnesses. The word receive means you're not even supposed to hear it unless there's evidence. You say, why? Why do pastors get special treatment? Well, because there's a target on our back. Because people are often trying to ruin and destroy our reputations and destroy our ministry by just throwing out false accusations. But the point is this, that we're supposed to live our lives in such a way that it's blameless. Blameless. So somebody says, I saw Pastor so-and-so coming out of a bar holding hands with a woman that he wasn't married to. He'll be like, no, you didn't. I don't know who you saw, but that wasn't pastor. That, that means that you live your life under accountability. Oh, really? When was that? On Monday night. Like, oh, well, on Monday night, pastor was with his wife, or pastor was at church with the staff, or doing a leadership class, or whatever. You know, the, the idea is that we live our lives in a way that is above reproach. No secrets. No unaccounted times. Nowhere. Where exactly were you on that day that nobody knew where you were at? 
What happened to that money that you took out of the account? We're blameless. It's not, not sinless. We're obviously all sinners, but it's to live our lives in such a way that is above reproach. And that makes sense when you talk about ministry, but God says, no, you're supposed to live blameless too. You're supposed to live above reproach as well. You say, well, how do I do that? First Thessalonians 5, look at verse 22. Look at these, these, these statements that seem to be randomly put together. Verse 22, abstain from all appearance of evil. You know that blameless? You know that blameless not only means that you abstain from evil, but you abstain from the appearance of evil? That means you don't even do something that looks like you could be doing something wrong. My wife and I go to a restaurant, and they put wine cups in front of us. First thing we do is turn them upside down, and as soon as a waiter or anybody walks by, say, can you, can you take these cups? You say, why, why would you do that? That's, that's a little much. Well, the Bible says abstain from all appearance of evil. I don't, I don't want somebody to walk by and you say, well, you can put apple cider in there. Yeah, but I don't want somebody to walk by and think that I'm drinking something I don't want them thinking I'm drinking. Abstain from all appearance of evil. I've told couples uh, that have gone in trouble in, in, in the past, and I, I've sat them down, and I said, now listen, this happens again. If you, if, if you are together again, I'm going to assume you're fornicating. With no evidence? Yeah, I'm going to assume it. I'm going to assume you're, you're doing something wrong. Because you're supposed to abstain from the appearance of evil. We just spent the night together, but we didn't actually physically have any uh, contact. Nobody believes that. We're not idiots. And, and if that happened, oh well. We still don't believe it. Why? Because you're supposed to abstain. You're supposed to be blameless. Above reproach. Above board. I realize we live in a society that's crooked and wicked and does whatever they want. But at least Christians should care about their testimony. Abstain from all appearance of evil. And the very God of peace, don't miss this, sanctify you. Holy. Now, what does that mean, holy? And I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body. You know how God wants all of you? Be preserved. Don't miss it. Here's our key word. Blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's called character. It's called integrity. Integrity is doing, integrity is doing the right thing when nobody's looking. Integrity is living your life in a way where you're blameless, where you're accounted for, where you're safe, where you're not trying to fight temptation. You've made no provision for the flesh. And then he says harmless. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read this for you. Actually, go ahead and turn there. Go to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. Matthew 10 and verse 16 says, Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. This is what Jesus said. Be ye therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Our job is to be harmless, to be agreeable, to not be uh, disputing or contentious, to not be angry, to, not, uh, to, to just live our lives in such a way where people would say, there's somebody, they don't want to harm me. The Bible says, Be ye therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Sometimes Christians live their lives in a way where they're wise as doves and harmless as serpents. How's your attitude? Are you a complainer? Do you like to argue? Do you like character and integrity? Do you abstain from all appearance of evil? Do you live above board? Are you agreeable? All these things will answer for us how mature you are. All these things will answer for us how good you are at working out what God has worked in, at working with God as he works on you. Then I want you to give you a third one. Go back to Philippians chapter 2. Let's do this quickly. Look at verse 15. I said number one, it depends upon your application of the word of God. Number two, it depends upon your attitude as a child of God. 
Then lastly this morning, it depends upon your advertisement of the things of God. Look, whether you like it or not, you are a walking advertisement for God. You may be the only Bible anyone, some people ever read. Here, Paul tells us that our lifestyle, we've talked about this recently in Philippians, but he brings it up again. Your lifestyle should match your evangelism. Notice verse 15. That ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. You and I live in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. The Bible says that we are to shine as lights in the midst of this crooked and perverse nation. Go back to Matthew. Look at uh, chapter 5, verse 16. You know the verse, but let's look at it together. Matthew 5, 16. Matthew 5, 16. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Your life should match your evangelism. See, it's not enough, look, it's not enough for you to, I'm, I'm a soul winner, I go soul winning. I hope you go soul winning. I want you to go soul winning. But I want you to live right when you're not soul winning too. I want you to do right when you're not. See, you say, it's all about evangelism. Yeah, but your life, look, we don't believe in lifestyle evangelism, but your lifestyle should match your evangelism. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. You say, well, how do I do that? It's all based upon your application and attitude. Do you apply the word of God? Do you have a good attitude? Or do you do whatever you want? And have a bad attitude. Because God says, (laughs) you're an advertisement for me, whether you like it or not. People look at you and they say, either they say, that's a son of God. Or they say, that's a son of God. They either say, that's what a Christian is supposed to be like. Or they say, like Gandhi, I would be a Christian if it wasn't for Christians. They either say, look, wow, that, I see Christ. Or, look at that. Supposedly, that's supposed to be a representation of Christ. Your lifestyle should match your evangelism. But then Paul says this, in case people get confused, your lifestyle is not enough for evangelism. It's not just your lifestyle. We must preach the word of God. Look at verse 16, Philippians 2, verse 16. Holding forth the word of life. I like the imagery there. Holding forth the word of life is this idea that we are to go and hold the word. When I read those verses, I think of a soul winner taking their Bible and holding it up and pointing at the verses and reading as they're presenting the gospel. See, our lifestyle is supposed to match our evangelism, but our lifestyle is not enough for evangelism. We must live right, then we must take the word of God and holding forth the word of God. Preach the gospel. Let our light so shine before man has to do with how we live and it has to do with how we preach. Ephesians 6, 19, you have to turn there, I'm out of time. I'll just read this for you and for me. Paul says that utterance may be given unto me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. Colossians 4, 3 says, With all praying also for us that God would open unto us a door of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in bonds, that I may make manifest as I ought to speak. Let me be clear, and I'm not trying to hurt your feelings. I'm just being clear with you. If you're not a soul winner, you're not right with God. That's the only reason God kept you here. That's the only reason God left you here, was that you would live your life in such a way that would be pleasing to Him so you could take the Word of God and hold it forth. And if you're not doing that, Jesus says, you're salt that has lost its savor. He says, you're not doing what I asked you to do. The word manifest means to show clearly. And by the way, on a day like today as we celebrate independence, do you realize that you live in a country and America has its problems and I'm not excusing America's problems but do you realize that you at least live in a country where you have the liberty to go preach the gospel? Amen. And then you don't. You have the freedom to go knock on somebody's door. 
and say, may I show you how you can know for sure you're on your way to heaven? You won't get arrested for that. You won't get stoned for that. At worst, you might have somebody slam the door in your face. Boo-hoo. I don't think that's, you know, I don't think there's a special crown in heaven for that one. That's not one, you know, when Paul's telling his stories, you're not, you know, he's going to talk about how he was beaten. You're going to be like, oh, let me tell you one time, they slammed the door in my face. (laughs) And he's going to be like, and then what? You have the freedom, I have the freedom to preach the word of God. But we can't be bothered. We're too busy making money. We're too busy doing whatever we want. Go to Philippians chapter 2. Let's finish up. Paul ends this little passage here with a couple of things. Remember, the idea is that we are working out what God is working in. That we are working with God as God is working on us. It has to do with our Christian maturity. You say, how do I know if I'm working out what God is working in? Well, you have to answer this question. It depends upon your application of the Word of God. Are you actually doing what God tells you to do? If you're not doing what God tells you to do, you're not working out what God's working in. You're not working with God. You're not mature. In fact, God says, don't get mad at me. Jesus said it. You're a fool. That's to do with your attitude. If you're complaining and you're arguing, if you lack character and you're disagreeable, mark it down. You're not working out what God's working in. You're not working with God as God's working on you. You're not a mature Christian. Because mature Christians rejoice evermore. It's not that they don't have complaints. It's that they take their complaints to God. It's not that they're sinless, but they're blameless. They live above reproach. They live their lives in such a way they abstain from not just evil, but even the appearance of evil. It has to do with your advertisement. See, it, it, it's two sides of the same coin. Don't tell me you're a great soul winner while you're getting drunk and smoking weed and fornicating. And, but but don't, don't live right and then not go soul winning. You're not doing what God wants you to do either. Your lifestyle should match your evangelism and your lifestyle is not enough for evangelism. Then Paul says this. He says, if you don't, right? If you listen to a sermon like this and say, meh, Whatever. I don't care. Paul says, and he's talking to the church of Philippi, he says, if you don't allow God to work in you, and I, I hate to even say this, except Paul said it. He says, if you don't allow God to work in you, he says, we're wasting our time. Philippians 2.16, holding forth the word of life, that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Look, and, and I, hope, I, hope you, I hope you know my heart. I really do. Some of you may not know me that well, and I'm sorry about that. We should try to get, get to know each other. I, I, I'm not complaining when I say this. My, my heart is really for our church and for the people of God. Sometimes my wife and I, we, we scratch our heads and we think, so I don't understand why people, they take time out of their schedule to ask to meet with me or meet with her, and, and, and we're busy. I mean, we, we've, we've got a church to run, we've got six children, we've got a marriage for us to work on and, and have responsibilities and duties, duties. And people are like, oh, pastor, give me three hours of your time to talk about X, Y, and Z, and we take the time and we give it to them and we say, yeah, and we go and we say, here's what the Bible says, and oh, yeah, I want to follow God's word, I want to do what God says. Then they walk out the door and just do the exact opposite. And I think to myself, at least don't waste my Tuesday night. At least don't waste at least don't keep my wife busy when she's got six kids. At least don't waste her. If you want advice and you actually want to take what God says, praise the Lord. But Paul says, if you don't do what we're telling you to do, he says, then I've just run in vain. We've labored in vain. There's no point. So you got to really ask yourself, Do I actually care what the Bible says? Because if you don't allow God to work in you, you're wasting your time. But then, then Paul says this. If you do, 
if you do allow God to work on you, then it's worth the sacrifice. Look at verse 17. Yay. And if I be offered, remember, he just got done saying, if you don't do it, then I have run in vain, neither labored in vain. He says, yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, he says, if I get offered, the idea is that I'm like a sacrifice. Remember, Paul said, he said, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present yourselves a living sacrifice. He says, if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, he said, if I am poured as an offering and serving you, he says, I joy and rejoice with you all for the same cause also do ye joy and rejoice with me he says look it's worth it it's worth the late night it's worth the time in prayer it's worth the preaching it's worth the invested time if you do it but if you don't then we've just ran in vain then we've labored in vain and this is what I mean where sometimes we as ministers just kind of have to stand back and give it to God and say, because we can give you the advice, we can preach the sermons, we can open the word of God, we can let you know what you're supposed to do. And then step back and say, I really hope he does it. I really hope she does it. I really hope she fixes her attitude. I really hope he abstains from the appearance of evil. I really hope they put into application the things that they have learned because to whom much is given, much shall be required. It's up to you. See, God wants to work in you. And God wants to work with you. But God needs you to work with him, to work out what he's working in. So the question is, are you? working with God as he works on you. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for this passage. Lord, thank you for the Apostle Paul. And Lord, I thank you that in ministry you allow us the privilege to spend time investing in loving people. I thank you for the times that we can say it was worth it. It was worth the stress. It was worth the time. It was worth the nights. It was worth the prayers. And sometimes we walk away saying, well, we did it for God, but it was in vain. They weren't listening. They didn't actually care. They didn't actually do anything that we told them to do. Lord, I pray you'd help us to be Christians who are mindful of the fact that God is always watching. Help us to have young people who say, I will obey not when my parents are watching, but I will obey because I love and fear the Lord. Help us to apply your word. Help us to work on our attitudes. Help us to be a good advertisement of the things of God. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen.